Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. David Lesher. David Lesher is co-founder, editor, and CEO of CalMatters.org, a nonprofit, nonpartisan media venture dedicated to explaining California's politics and policies. He was previously director of government affairs at the Public Policy Institute of California and has more than 25 years of journalism experience, largely at the Los Angeles Times, where he was a political writer, state capital reporter, and an assistant national editor. He has also served as editor of California Journal Magazine and as California director for the New America Foundation. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Mr. David Lesher. Thank you very much. Uh, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, I want to say thank you also to uh, Zocalo and to AARP for hosting this event. Um, and thank you all for coming. And, uh, and thank you to a great panel. I'm looking forward to a very good discussion about a very important topic, affordable housing. You know, something that has become an oxymoron for a lot of people in California today. So we have a lot of ground to cover, and so I want to get straight to um, introduce the panel and then get straight to our questions. So uh, let's see, seated next to me, Gary Segura is the dean of UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs, uh, and previously at Stanford. Next to Gary is Lisa Hershey, the Executive Director of Housing California. Uh, and next is Rodney Harrell, a Director of Livability Thought Leadership at AARP in Washington. And uh, Senator Kevin DeLeon, President Pro Tem of the California State Senate and host of us tonight in his district here. <laughs> So we have, uh, like I said, a lot to cover, and uh, I'd like to just make sure we cover some of the basics with it, get the perspectives on this panel for, you know, how big of a problem is this, uh, what's the cause of the problem, and uh, what are we going to do about it? So uh, I think w for the first question, we'll just go down the road uh, like this. I'll start with you, Gary, but, you know, how big of a problem is affordable housing in California? And, uh, you know, another way to ask that question is the title of our event tonight. You know, is our um, housing prices destroying the California dream? Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, um, I think you're asking me to say a little more than that. Uh, I think it is a tremendous problem. I think it is one that affects all ends of the economic distribution. I think it affects all ends of the age distribution. I think it's hard to buy a house if you're a young couple uh, with a baby. It's hard to hold on to a house if you're uh, approaching retirement age. I am one of millions of Californians who cannot afford my house the day I retire. Um, I think that m more than that, from my perspective as a professor of public affairs, is that there is a set of problems that intersect to create the housing crisis in California. It is the way we zone. It is the expectations we place on people who build housing. It is the expectations we all have for the types of places that we live. Um, there's a couple of really interesting uh, factoids that I'll share throughout the course of the night from some of the research that the very fine urban planners at Luskin do. Um, but the first one is that 75% of the residential land in Los Angeles and Los Angeles County is zoned for single-family dwellings. And as my colleagues, uh, Pavel Monkinen and Mike Lenz would point out in the work that they've done, uh, it turns out that those sorts of zoning laws create class segregation and they create housing scarcity. And that's just one of a dozen problems that, that intersect to create the housing crisis. So we didn't get here because of a single cause, and we're not going to escape it with a single solution. Thank you. And uh, Lisa Hershey, how about you? Is, it, is our housing prices destroying the California dream? How big of a problem is this? Yes, so I'll just build on what you just spoke to and just say that it's taken many years to get to where we are, and there were a variety of factors that created this situation. Um, going back to the recession, you know, the big crash in 2008. In California, it was exacerbated in 2011 when our governor did away with redevelopment, which then we lost over a billion dollars per year in affordable housing. And then there was big industry pushes to ensure that um, it was hard for local governments 
to make sure that there was housing built for everybody, that the zoning really supported that. And then there are things built into our tax structures that make this really challenging. So yes, I would say at this point, virtually everyone is directly connected to housing affordability, housing insecurity, or homelessness, either personally connected or someone they're close to. It is definitely con uh, connecting or affecting our seniors um, who are ha maybe house rich mm. and cash poor, right? Mm -hmm. And our young folks who are leaving the state. So um, I think that it is a big issue. We are super excited in California. Our legislature and governor just passed 15 bills that are definitely start of the change and a framework of solutions that are gonna help us transform all the discriminatory policies and practices that have made it really difficult, particularly for people with the lowest income, lowest wage workers and people of color in California. And we're gonna start shifting the tide. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think it's changing behavior of people? Are people leaving California because of the housing prices or not coming to California? Well, the research would suggest both. Mm -hmm. That is definitely happening. And I think one of the biggest things that Senator DeLeon and we were just speaking about was so many of our communities, including the community we are in, we have had communities of color, rich, deep communities for many, many decades. And as our communities are changing, we've got um, invest some investment in transit and development. It is pushing our neighborhoods out. So the communities, the folks that have owned these spaces for so long are being pushed out, moving farther away from work that's causing other issues, and some are leaving the state. Um, they can't live close to their jobs. They, don't, they need stable homes to keep their kids in school to have everything that their families need and they're having to pay too much to rent and not able to stay in California. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And Rodney Harrell, you have a, a national perspective about this issue and so how serious is it in California? So to your point, there is a national crisis in terms of affordable housing and uh, unfortunately in California it's even exacerbated above that uh, in many cases. Uh, we just talked about the fact that uh, many people are thinking about leaving the state uh, we just did a survey of California Dreamer, California Struggling, and it looked at this question, and we saw that almost two-thirds of Californians have thought about leaving the state due to these uh, high housing costs, and uh, this is particularly amongst certain groups. And, uh, you know, there's a, a wide variety of issues that have come to do this, but the, the real thing I think we should pay attention to is the impact that these prices have on people's lives overall, that housing costs aren't in isolation, uh, that uh, they're the largest part of people's budgets normally, and so uh, you're paying too much for housing, well then that has to come from somewhere. Does that come out of your transportation budget? Does it come out of a uh, health budget or, or other things that you might need? And so you know, it's the way that these uh, high costs impact people uh, that becomes one of the larger concerns that, that we should have. Mm -hmm. Just so destroying the California dream? I think it's tough. It, it, it frankly, uh, you know, it's a very tough thing, especially because very few people uh, tend to think long term. Mm. Uh, you know, we find very few have you know a thousand dollars or more in savings for that emergency that might come. Uh, so what I worry most about are the folks that have not planned for some emergency, and then as soon as that emergency happens, you know, your, something happens to your spouse, you have some kind of health crisis yourself, you, you lose a job, you retire, any of these life changes happen. If you don't have affordable housing uh, options for yourself in a community that you like then you end up a short change and you know that's the worst case scenario mm -hmm. like a wildfire mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then it can burn for a long period of time mm -hmm. yeah yeah senator uh yourself how do, how serious do you think this problem is i mean california is ranked uh, one of the the highest poverty rate in the country based on the supplemental poverty measure partly because of the, the housing prices how how serious do you think this problem is well, I'd, I'd underscore and emphasize and italicize and bold uh, the word yes, you know, that Gary started with. Uh, without question, this is a, uh, this is a, a major crisis uh, for the sixth largest economy in the world. And I want to put this in context because uh, there's only five larger economies uh, on this planet, uh, larger than that of the state of California. Obviously, it's the United States as a whole. In the aggregate, it is China, it's Japan, it's Germany, depending on the the good day, the fluctuations of the, po the pound or the sterling, it is the UK. And that number six is the great state, our state, the state of California. And if you're remotely interested in rounding up the top 10, number seven is France, eight is Brazil, nine is a country that's been in the news for quite a bit, Russia, <laughs> and number 10 is Italy. So California's economy, our GDP is larger than that of Vladimir Putin's Russia, to put this in context. And our GDP is twice as large as that of the state of Texas. 
Now, being, being that as it may, being the sixth largest economy in the world, um, we have a housing crisis, and it's a big driver, without a doubt, uh, when it comes to uh, poverty, when it comes to displacement, gentrification, uh, when it comes to the issue of homelessness. Um, we have 21 uh, of the top 30 most expensive rental housing markets in the country. Mm-hmm. And if you were to work a minimum wage job, on average, if you were to work a minimum wage job, you would need to work three of them full-time to afford a two-bedroom apartment, on average, in the state of California. So this is a major, major crisis. Uh, it has the real possibility of putting us in a very vulnerable economic state uh, in the near future. Uh, my district, and it's an amazing district, we're, we're in it right now, Little Tokyo, but uh, I have probably the most diverse district, if not in the country, in the world. I have Little Tokyo, Chinatown, Koreatown, Little Bangladesh, Filipino Town, Thai Town, Little Armenia. Um, I have the largest concentration of Mexicans outside of the Republic of Mexico in Boyle Heights in East LA, slightly to the east of us. And I have the largest concentration of Central Americans, Guatemalans and Salvadorians, uh, slightly to the west of us in Pico Union, MacArthur Park. I also have the largest concentration of hipsters outside of Brooklyn. In, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Echo Park, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, these are great neighborhoods, but it's also, in various areas, the epicenter, too, of uh, displacement and gentrification, especially in a community like Echo Park, which is a really fantastic, diverse neighborhood, but I never would have fathomed the very thought, I don't think anyone here who is uh, a longtime uh, Angelino, that a neighborhood that is so steeped in culture, like Boyle Heights, would see the beginning signs of gentrification. It's very controversial, without a doubt, what's happening. You know, there's both sides of the story, but we have a major housing crisis. Let me underscore that, period. In Los Angeles, throughout California, San Diego, the Bay Area. Um, we have moved forward with, a, uh, as Lisa just mentioned, uh, what I believe is a historic uh, package of bills, 15 bills, uh, four of them specifically, I know, because I negotiated them, you know, Senate Bill 2. Uh, which will provide about $250 million on an annual basis. So this Mm -hmm. is in perpetuity to leverage from the private sector for affordable housing investments, closely, hopefully, up to about a billion dollars on an annual basis. And the last two I'll just underscore is the issue of um, Senate Bill 3, which is a general obligation bond. These are one-time dollars, but they will be leveraged with the private sector. It's our hope that we can leverage about $10 billion in total. That's going to be before all of you. Uh, in 2018 for the voters to vote. And, and, and there's several other bills, but the one chief yeah. bill, Senate Bill 35, which is Scott Wiener's bill from mm-hmm. San Francisco. So that I'm come back to this. Bill. Okay, well, okay. I'll hold it at that right there. Okay. And I'll let you, you know, come um, back to because it. Because, I mean, before we get to solutions, I'd like to give the perspective of the panel about what the problem is. Because the solution we pick really yeah. depends on how we identify the problem. You know, and we've heard of many different problems contributing to this. You know high land costs, high labor costs, government regulation, nimbyism, redevelopment, you know, uh, you know, I, we did, a, at, at Cal Matters, we did a, um, a uh, ask questions of people, what do they think it is, and people raised Airbnb and, mm-hmm. and foreign investment. Um, so, you know, w- there's a lot of thought about what's causing this, but, you know, before we get to solutions, you know, I'd be interested what the panel sees as, as the cause of this problem. So, you know, why don't we start with you, Lisa, if that's okay. Sure. So I mentioned a couple, and you just mentioned them again. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to um, share a a story of a resident that just came to mind that makes me really think about it. And I will also speak to tax reform. Uh, But first of all, um, her name is Amelia Concepcion. She is a resident uh, who lives in in my district in Sacramento. She's actually part of our Residents United Network out of Housing California. But we were doing a, a visit with one of our, our assembly member Cooper around right. Senate Bill 2 and Senate Bill 3. And she shared her story, which I hadn't heard before. And Amelia was a nurse working for a very long time, her whole life. She was married. She owned a home. She was raising two daughters. And... Um, comfortably living. She had everything saving for retirement, saving for her children's education. And she was called into a hospital room one day by um, someone else who said, you know, I need you to come in immediately. She went in. The person who brought her in the room didn't mention that the patient had thrown up all over the floor. Uh, Amelia slipped and she was injured. So she went out, she went through rehab, she was off on disability. 
her husband died. She finally was able to return to work, but she no longer had a job. She couldn't afford to pay her mortgage. She couldn't afford to take care of her children. So she found somewhere for her children to go. And she was, she was older at this point. She was already into her 60s, getting close to retirement, ready to retire. So she didn't have a place to live. So she went and talked to social workers in the community. And the social workers said to her, and this is in Sacramento, and I quote, here is a tent, go set up at the river. Hmm. And so this is someone who worked her whole life, who is like probably many of us in this room, had did all the things that we thought, but all the systems that were in place, we think we are safe, and then there was these, these series of events. Fortunately, she ran into someone else who said, you know what, there's, there's, there's places for people who are seniors or other kind of homes come and check this out. And she was able to get into an affordable house, which we have long wait lists now. But because of that, and because of this whole experience, Amelia has become this incredible advocate for investment in affordable homes for everyone else. And so what we know about housing is housing instability that is caused by a variety of different factors, including discriminatory policy that we've had for a lot of years, by taxes, we, a lot of us have subsidies. We don't even realize it. We get mortgage interest deduction for our homes, particularly if you have really expensive homes. That's where the subsidies go. They do not go to people who rent. They do not go to lower income people. So it is very difficult if you look at the American dream, if you ha have a lower wage, and chances are that may have come because you did not have a stable home, you didn't, couldn't finish your education, you didn't have other access. It is very hard to build wealth to even rent, get everything else you need, education, and then save for a home. So I feel like there are a variety of different factors. You've mentioned some, and I know my, my panelists will hear too, but we haven't invested as a state or a nation in infrastructure, in affordable homes, in transit, into livable communities, all the different things that are connected. So people can stay in a home with their family. They have access to schools. They have access to jobs. They have access to food and health and all the things that they need in order to thrive and survive. And that stability of home makes everything else possible. And so those are a few of the things that I think are key. So um, how our tax structure is set up, how our investments, we've lost $1.7 billion a year in investments in California, so we need to mm -hmm. produce more, we need to preserve what we have, and we need to protect our renters and other people in the places they are. Thank you. And uh, so Roddy, what do you put your finger on when you look at the, what's causing this issue? Yeah, and the simple answer is supply, that there's mm -hmm. not enough housing units of the types that people need. And so we just got to, to part of this that, you know, uh, we're here today to talk about affordability. That's, that's a key issue. Uh, but just having a home, even if, the, even if we solve that, if we have enough homes that, that people can afford, uh, they might not be in the right place for you. They might not have the right features. Maybe if the, the woman we just talked about had uh, a home that had... Uh, some, some safety features built in that she might have been a little bit safer in that fall, might have been prevented. Uh, you know, so having a home that's designed for people regardless of their needs, having homes that are in livable communities, meaning that they're close to the thing, things that people need, the transportation networks, the community features and services, all of those things, and a home that they can afford. You know, doing that, creating those options uh, that people need requires a supply of a range of different types of housing and a range of different types of communities and neighborhoods. And, and frankly, what we have is a crisis in part because we're fighting for the limited options that we have. So you, know, you can barely afford this option that doesn't really fit your needs, and you're making do until something happens, until something gives. And, and that's when that problem gets revealed that you know, if you wanted, if your uh, spouse dies or if you're retired and your income goes down, do you have an option that you can stay in your neighborhood that you can now afford? Most people don't. Uh, most people are at that level and they're, they're maintaining where they are. But again, that supply, not having the options that people need, to me, is the key. So do you, you put your finger on um, building not enough houses? I mean, do you have a sense of why there aren't enough houses? What's keeping us from building? Is it, I mean, um, Lisa, you mentioned funding, obviously. Are there other barriers, do you think, to building the number of houses we Yeah, need? there's a range of barriers. So, and, and we've touched on a few of them. I'll, I'll touch on some more, uh, on them again. And, and to say, uh, we talked about zoning a little bit and the amount of single-family mm -hmm. homes uh, that are built. Uh, you know, having homes of different types is often a zoning issue. Uh, communities don't necessarily 
uh, like a lot of housing options at the big level. They'll say, we don't want uh, you know, too many apartments in our town. That kind of uh, thing happens. So you get zoning that's built to have homes that have nice large yards for folks. But all of a sudden, uh, taken at a bigger level, uh, you might not, when you build communities like that, you don't have enough housing near transportation options for mm -hmm. people. So now the community as a whole suffers because they don't have those options in addition to the individual who can't afford the home in that community. Right, so uh, you, know, you have that uh, being an issue. Uh, also, um, one thing we haven't mentioned today that I'm very uh, actually excited about, I guess I'm jumping to the solution a little bit, are uh, some of the things like accessory dwelling units and those kind of modifications that people can make uh, to their homes. And California's made a lot of progress, probably the most in the nation recently on that. But what that reveals on the backside is that a lot of our homes weren't built the right way for us in the first place. Mm -hmm. That we've now got this existing housing stock full of housing that doesn't necessarily meet our needs. So we've got to figure out how to you know, build the housing that we need on top of that layer. We're not starting from scratch here. That's one of the biggest policy issues with this, that we're starting from a state where uh, we have a state, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, a state where we have uh, uh, this housing built, uh, you know, we've got the, the transportation mm -hmm. system we've got, we've got the community stuff the way they are, and they don't necessarily work. So we've got to figure out the ways to move to that next level where we can insert the options that people need. Thank you. Uh, and Senator, I'm interested in what you think the, is the cause of this problem, but also curious if what you think of NIMBYism and, and the state and local, you know, relationship on this issue especially. Do you think there's any? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I'd say all of the above and uh, of the, uh, the, the answers that the great panelists gave today and, and then some I think you had made, perhaps David, a reference to uh, uh, foreign uh, investments coming in and sweeping up a lot of uh, uh, availability on the market, pennies on the dollar. Obviously, when we suffered the worst economic recession since 1929, mm -hmm. when a lot of folks you know, lost everything, obviously they lost their homes, uh, um, foreclosures, and uh, uh, so there's a whole variety of factors, obviously, um, and that leads to less supply, obviously, on the market. There is a supply issue. There's no question about it. Um, the, there's uh, local government issues up and down the state of California, and, and, uh, now, and it's, it's, it's the right thing to do, to accept the critique you know, overall with regards to uh, CRA and uh, the, uh, uh, the um, uh, evisceration, if you will, of... CRA uh, being... The uh, uh, community reinvestment, you know, uh, development uh, uh, program that many local governments up and down the state uh, relied on heavily. Uh, some local governments did a good job with it. Some other local governments were very abusive with the money, and uh, there was always an accountability issue. If in fact were we actually building the housing that was needed and the right housing that was needed, and many local governments, in fact, were commingling these dollars and not using the dollars for the intended objective. So that's why we were in the middle of a, a huge. A crisis, and it, it was where you had to make a choice between uh, senior citizens who had the early signs of dementia and funding that would be cut, and children who were on the spectrum, either Asperger's or autism, who needed the the, the funding, the critical dollars, or CRA dollars, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with local government. And we made a very difficult so, uh, Sophie's choice, but I think at the end of the day, I stand with the decision that I made collectively along with the governor. Um, it has hurt, no doubt about it. I, I will recognize that. But there's a whole variety of factors. The issue of NIMBYism specifically. Um, we do have some NIMBYism that exists up and down the state of California. It is a reality. Um, I, I, I've not been much of a world traveler. I've, I've had the opportunity um, in the past few years uh, since 2015, so well late into my 40s, to go to Paris. Uh, one was uh, the Conference of Parties 21, the Climate Change uh, United Nations Conference, and, um, and the second time was uh, a buddy of mine got married, and I asked him, why can't you get married in Santa Barbara or <laughs> Malibu? Why do you have to go all the way to Paris to get married? But um, it's a beautiful city, there's no question about it. And um, I marveled at the city, and, and coming back, and you hear Angelino say, well, Paris is so beautiful, London is so gorgeous, you know, the walkability, and uh, those two cities are much more dense than Los Angeles are. It's not even close, the density, in comparison to Los Angeles. Yet, when we have the housing issues that are being discussed, whether it's market or affordability, you know, then it's like, mm, mm -hmm. not here. What do you, yeah. I mean, the Legislative Analyst Office said that we need about 180,000 housing units stock. built, you yeah. know, and we're, we haven't gone over 100,000 for the last 10 years. 
what is the barrier to, to building the number of houses, do you think? Well, there's a whole variety of factors. Some of them I just uh, articulated. Also, to the issue of, uh, of permitting. You know, that's a big issue at the local government level. Yeah. Um, the, the, the inefficiencies that exist, the, the, the layers of bureaucracy, where capital uh, won't be stagnant. Capital is just going to move elsewhere, where there is less red tape, less bureaucracy. And if you don't have local governments that provide a, a coherent vision uh, uh, and that requires leadership. It's, that's policy, but to actually, you know, manifest this policy and execute it into real results that have a meaningful impact on improving the human condition for everyday people, mm -hmm. it requires leadership. Short of that, you know, city managers or housing uh, authority experts are not going to be able, as well-intentioned as they are, they're not going to be able to produce what is necessary. So with regards to, and I don't know if it's okay, but the Senate Bill 35 with Scott Wiener from, from San Francisco, um, that is going to streamline the permitting process so there's less red tape so we can actually start building because with all the money that's going to be coming down the pipeline, it's all for naught if it just gets stuck there and there's a juggernaut. And at the local level, um, there is this, this bureaucracy. And if you don't mind, um, David, okay, it's I, okay. One thing I want to add is, uh, is I'm not a, a, an absolute, I'm not an expert when it comes to housing or the issue of homelessness. But a couple of years ago, I came down to, uh, just down the street adjacent to um, uh, 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 Skid Row. And I spent half a day with Skid Row housing advocates, the LAPD, the city attorney's office, the housing authority of the city, as well as the county, social workers, behavioral experts. Um, and it was wonderful engaging with all of them. You know, I, I asked a lot of questions. They educated me. I grew as a result. And um, the conclusion was the following. The left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. And the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. And I actually came out more confused <laughs> from sitting down with a group of experts on this issue. And my predecessor, uh, Daryl Steinberg, uh, and I, we went to a cafe and we had coffee and we said, you know what, let's, I won't say the expletive, but we said, let's effing do this, you know? <laughs> and we decided to take $2 billion from Prop 64, the millionaire's tax, mm -hmm. repurpose those dollars and dedicate those dollars exclusively to housing for the chronically homeless individuals who are mentally ill. And we didn't decide to call for a blue ribbon, you know, a panel of experts and then come with a report and, you know, th that you'll be issued. We said, let's just do this. And that is sort of metaphorically speaking, sort of cutting through the red tape and cutting to the chase. Now, the last thing I'd say is this, the money is flowing. And there's, supposed to, there's a development supposed to happen in Boyle Heights, in the neighborhood I represent. That has been stopped. That has been stopped. And that's why I'm saying at the macro level, we can move all the capital that's necessary to catalyze and accelerate and attract money so we can continue to build. But if at the local level, the leadership is lacking, then it just takes a really bad problem it makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I apologize for it. And Gary Segura, what do you attribute the, the, the affordable housing problem to? And, you know, I'm also curious, too, whether you think there's a, a Prop 13 effect. I mean, uh. basically, the, the issue being that, you know, for if you're a local government, that building housing really doesn't even pay enough to cover the services that you're going to need for the people who move in. Sure. So um, I'm going to end with Prop 13 and start with where uh, Rodney was, which was supply. Um, and we don't have a supply. And in order to get a supply, someone has to build them. And the regulatory environment is very, very difficult for a variety of reasons. Some of it is NIMBYism. Some of it has to do with things that Scott Wiener's bill addressed. Um, but there are other things that are imposed by, in some instances, local government uh, that make pulling a building permit the most expensive thing you can do in California. Now, it is popular in California to dislike developers. Okay. And I'm not here to represent developers, though if there are any developers in the room and you'd like to make an investment in public higher education, see me after. <laughs> um, but, but, but 
But the problem is that developers build buildings. And that we need them to build the buildings. And one of the basic rules of economic activity is people don't do things unless there's a sufficient economic return. That's basic economics. They even teach that at USC. So, <laughs> Got it in. Well done. So, so there has to be a financial return from the activity. When you, when you pull a building permit in many localities in California, you're responsible for widening the streets, providing additional parking. In some instances, you're taking on all sorts of uh, wage issues, you're taking on all sorts of environmental mitigation issues which may or may not have anything to do with the, with the property that you're developing. So we cannot use developers and development as the solution to solve all other social ish ills. Um, let's take transportation, for example, which these things are intimately related. My, colleagues, Don, my colleague Don Shoup at, at, uh, at Luskin would tell you that there are eight parking spots for every car in North America, eight. But we're gonna require developers to have additional parking, which means they build less units, and on average they build larger units in order to recoup their costs. So when we impose various additional requirements on what developers do, we raise the cost of building housing. Now this came up recently in the discussion of linkage fees, and this is what gets us, gets us to Prop 13. Linkage fees are a way to make the developers pay for all the other social things we want to pay for. There's a, and, and that's under the assumption that the developers are benefiting the most from housing development. But in fact, they're not. We, the taxpayers who own homes, are actually reaping the greatest single benefit because our home values are skyrocketing in part because there's a lack of supply but we don't pay tax on that because of Proposition 13. Well, I pay tax because I bought my house 11 months ago. But, <laughs> but for many of you who've owned your house for some period of time, you don't pay as much tax. Or we visit the tax on people who are buying, entering the housing market for the first time. They pay a much higher share of their income in tax than people um, who have been in their homes for a long time. So Proposition 13 is a deep, deep problem. And one of the reasons why we look to linkage fees and, and all sorts of other things uh, when, we, when we pull a building permit is because we're trying to fix what Prop 13 broke. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll leave it to the elected officials to tell us if there's any way to fix Prop 13, but it is, it is a severe, severe constraint on what the state can do. Can I, so, can I add something yeah, to Prop absolutely. 13? Yeah. So Prop 13 happened in 1978, and I saw the benefits. My family experienced the benefits of it for residential. What people don't realize is there was also corporate protections. And those corporations still hold those benefits. Chevron in the Bay Area has the same tax rate as they did in 1978. So I think the bigger issue is around the corporate protections and less about the residential. The other thing that people don't realize, and I was just talking to my mom about this, in 1978 when this happened, my parents, you know, it was our first home that was frozen, but we lost our lockers and our school bus immediately. So we felt it at the schools, and what happened is the money got redirected, and what is incentivized at the local level is businesses. It's not building residential, so it's exacerbated, and there is a movement, Make It Fair, to address Proposition 13, and it's a very, it's a, there's a lot of town halls happening across California, a lot of ways to engage, and I think that's part of the solution too, is more voices, all of you, all of our folks who are impacted, who have a voice, who this matters to, really speaking up and working with local government. I think there's great things happening in LA. H and HHH, I think there's great solutions, but I think Proposition 13, make it mm -hmm. fair, and addressing that corporate loophole would bring more than eight $8 billion a year back Sounds into like we our might local see that coffers. In the initiative. Mm, <laughs> but I, yeah, if I could add one footnote, it, you know, my colleague Mike Manville is, is the, the person who's written most eloquently about the cost that we impose on development. But in the end, you know, whether you like developers or dislike them, we need people breaking ground. And so we need to find a regulatory structure, whether it's zoning, whether it's the additional requirements that are placed on new development, whether it's fighting back against nimbyism, whether it's changing the percentage of land that's dedicated to single-family dwellings, we need to find a regulatory environment that makes it so that people want to build buildings that have lots and lots and lots of places to live yeah. in them. And there's a lot of nonprofit, not-for-profit, affordable developers who are invested deeply in making a change in California. They are part, a huge part of the solution. 
So, I, and just last question on this, uh, the problem area. I'm, uh, you're a professor of public policy, and this is a tough pu public policy question. How does, um, nobody in Boyle Heights wants Sacramento to tell them what kind of housing to build. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, how does, it, how does it work where it works? Why is California an outlier um, in, in, in that state-local relationship, or is it? Well, I, can I just say, I'm not sure if that's yeah. actually true. That's a, a myth that's perpetuated always, like, Sacramento's doing this or doing that bad, and it, you know, find a boogeyman, if you will, and it's them up there north. I, I, I think that this, this is such a crisis that we had to intervene. There was no mm -hmm. other choice. And although not the panacea to all the housing woes uh, in the state, in our local communities, um, it is one giant step forward. And I think by any objective measure, I think folks would agree, whether on the left or on the right, that this is one huge you know, um, uh, step forward to attempt to resolve them. We're hoping it will catalyze, if you will, uh, more investments and more ideas that will be manifest in legislation to help stream the process. The issue of NIMBYism, I can say this too, there has to be balance as well too, because I know folks want to protect the character of their communities and don't want all of a sudden these just monstrosities that just tear up the fabric of, of, of communities. We have to be bold, we have to be honest with each other because of all the social impacts that are real and there's a development that's two hours, three hours away and folks are commuting, you know, spending time on the freeway, time away from their children, from their loved ones, quality time. They're emitting, you know, greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, and other criteria pollutants mm -hmm. that our children breathe into their lungs every single day. In a district such as the one that I represent, um, I have like seven major freeways that crisscross a district like a like a serpent that chokes the air out of a young girl's lungs. I have the two, the five, the ten, the sixty, the one hundred one, the one ten. I have the two ten freeway, and 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 ironically speaking, with the ports of Long Beach and in, in, in Los Angeles combined, they're the largest ports uh, in the country. And, and when we have goods movement coming in from China and elsewhere, the Pacific Rim, the, young, the, the, the lungs of a young girl or young boy who lives along that corridor on the 710 freeway is subsidizing the low, the low price point of a flat screen television set that's being sold in Paducah, Kentucky or Bloomington, Indiana when I get to the uh, uh, distribution center point, whether it's in Palmdale, Lancaster, or in Ontario, or elsewhere. So these are really big health uh, outcome impacts, societal impacts, commuting, carbon dioxide with regards to climate, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, these are really big issues that we have to really tackle, and, and it does require leadership, because short of that, it, it'll just exasperate and get worse and worse. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, so I'm gonna move to the solutions. Uh, th this is, these questions get progressively harder. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Rodney, Harold, can we start with you? I mean, what do you think of the solution is to, to this issue? Sure, and, you know, I think we do ourselves a disservice by thinking about one silver bullet solution. There are mm -hmm. no silver bullets. We've talked about a wide range of things already this evening. We've talked about uh, some legislative barriers and issues. We've talked about some market-based issues that are uh, preventing things. We've talked about nimbyism and uh, those uh, actions of neighbors that are preventing this. Uh, so when you've got things coming from all the, oh, we've also talked about zoning and some historical factors at play as well. Mm -hmm. So those set the scene and we've all got to deal with that. But when you're dealing with all of these, these wide range of issues, you need a wide variety of solutions. And to me, the best way to do this is to start thinking with what we call a livable community strategy for all. The idea that we need to tie these pieces together in a way that makes sense so that we, uh, you know, we start off with neighbors understanding how my housing choice impacts the range of options we have that ties in with, our, with all the other systems at play. Uh, then we have you know, the private sector and developers that are understanding uh, that now there's more demand for the kinds of things that people want and need and, and they're doing what they need. We've got people in Sacramento and elsewhere that are creating policies uh, that uh, attack these things and they're supported by these folks that now see that they're trying to uh, create this in their communities. And we do all this with the knowledge that we have that our communities are what they are now. We have the housing that we have, it's located where it is. We've got the barriers that we have, but we start looking forward to this wide range of solutions uh, that can make that happen. Now, what those are, we've talked about some of them. We've talked about uh, 
you know, affordable housing funds that are dedicated to housing. We've talked actually about rapidly rehousing folks uh, that have, uh, that are experiencing homelessness and those kinds of issues. We've talked about uh, some zoning changes and expedited permitting and some of those things that can help. And to me, all of those things are the solution and there's more as well. These are things that are part of what we do as a strategy, a uh, combined strategy to make it so that we do have all the options that people need so that regardless of their income, regardless of their age, regardless of their ethnicity, and regardless of what community they wanna live in, there's an option that may work for them. So to me, we have to take that, that's our first step to understand this issue broadly bring it in together and think, what do we need to do to create a, a, a livable community for all people, all Californians to, to live in and, mm -hmm. and work in? Thank you. And so we've got a clock ticking before we move to the audience, but I want to go through the panel. Uh, but just a, a, an exit question I'd like to ask too, just to combine two questions is, you know, that's, you've described a solution. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Look down the road. We've just said this is destroying the California dream. That's pretty powerful, you know. Are you, what do you think when you look down the road and just briefly? Sure. So you, I'm very optimistic by nature and actually the optimism comes from crisis that I think that once people understand that there's a crisis going on and I'm glad we're having events like this one today, that that becomes a first step into gaining that momentum for all of those different parties I talked about to come together to start to work on those solutions. So uh, hopefully this starts that kind of conversation that we can get to that point. So I'm very optimistic uh, and frankly, it'd be hard to get much worse. <laughs> <laughs> so Senator, you, you've talked about many of the solutions, but you know, what, do you, what do you think? Well, let me ask, from what was passed this year, uh, how much uh, difference do you think it makes and what, what's left to do? How, how much of the problem was well, that? I, I like Rodney, I agree. There's not one ma major magic uh, silver bullet. There's gonna be a lot of silver BBs, you mm -hmm. know, uh, that's gonna really make this happen. I'm incredibly, incredibly optimistic. I, I by nature, am a very idealistic person. Um, I'm incredibly optimistic. The reason why is this. The bills that we pass with regards to the housing package, um, we pass Senate Bill 1, the transportation infrastructure measure. That's going to be, to scale it up over a course of 10 years, that's going to be $52 billion investing, you know, in infrastructure, transportation for California. That's in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. uh, we pass the cap and trade uh, investments. That's $1.5 of which $1 billion is dedicated exclusively to cleaning up our air in communities that are most impacted, replacing and upgrading dirty diesel uh, engines from the ports, and working with folks who may not even believe in climate change, but say, listen, we're gonna replace your engine, we're gonna help incentivize you to do that. And also incentivizing folks to purchase electric vehicles, especially if you come from the lowest economic strata, and making sure that your financial wherewithal shouldn't dictate if you have the access to the latest and greatest mm -hmm. and, and greenest technologies, that if you live in Boyle Heights or uh, Pacoima or elsewhere, that we can incentivize you. So I am incredibly optimistic of all the investments. Measure M, HHH, mm -hmm. H, no place like home. The investments in the next 10 years will be huge and it will truly improve the quality of life for Los Angeles. Just uh, uh, the bond on the $4 billion bond on the 20th Oh, I forgot to mention that one. Yeah, there's so much is, good stuff. Is That's that my, gonna, yeah. yeah. Senate Bill 5, uh, I'll make my pitch. It's gonna be before you on um, uh, June ballot uh, 2018. It is an investment of uh, $1.5 billion in creation of parks, open space, up and down the state of California, water, as well as flood control. The investment of $800 million is the largest investment in the history of the United States for parks for poor people, where there's a dearth of green and open space, you know, and it's the largest of its kind. It improves the quality of people's lives. For senior citizens to mm -hmm. walk freely, kids to play, you know, freely, it, it, parks, open space, trees, that's a good thing for our community, and that's what we need. Thanks. Um, and we've we got a clock ticking here. We'll, we'll talk more after this, but what um, solutions and optimism, or pessimism, whatever your, your sense looking ahead as we destroy the California dream? Um, <laughs> so. Well, I, I, I would say I'm, I'm moderately optimistic in, in two ways. The actions of the state legislature this year were certainly very eye-opening and, and a giant step in the positive direction. There are also some other things that have happened, in, including having to do with auxiliary dwelling units, which I think was a really big change. 
and had the effect of, of incentivizing the allowance of that in places where NIMBYism had heretofore prevented it. So I think that, that that's a nice step forward. And it may in fact be the solution. The state's electorate is increasingly progressive. Um, the state's demographics suggest that it's going to become even more so. And so that makes me optimistic. You know, if you look at Measure M, which I think was a really important moment in Los Angeles, uh, not only did Measure M pass with 71% of the vote, but it's pretty clear that naturalized citizens of the United States voted for Measure M at rates higher than any other segment of the, of the population in the area that was covered. That's because these are folks who very much believe in, in effective government and who in many instances need to rely on the public transportation sector. Those folks are going to be present to vote on other matters as well. So I think when we start to move towards trying to change some of the regulatory environment that makes the construction of a single, a single story strip mall um, a, a better option than a multi-story uh, dwelling, uh, I think that, you know, pushing in that direction, we're going to have the electorate that, help that, that will help make that happen. So I'm optimistic in that sense. I think it's a long haul, and I think probably everybody on the panel would agree with that. That's a good point. That's a good yeah. And Lisa Hershey, how about you? I would suggest this is a historic moment. Our experience with the governor signing legislation that the big three, Senator Pro Tem, as well as the speaker and the governor and all of us advocated for a framework of solutions was a moment in time that I think is the pivot for us that we all needed to fe feel and see in California. I think we're all part of the solution. I, I think everyone needs to engage all the sectors, all the people, really get out there, be part of the opportunity to vote. If you're not registered, get registered to vote. We've got um, the affordable housing, veteran affordable housing bond on the November election. We've got a gubernatorial campaign with several candidates that are interested in housing. This is our opportunity to make that change. Cap and trade invests directly in affordable housing sustainable communities, and that is a, a critical commitment to ongoing investment in these resources. So this is our moment. I feel incredibly optimistic that everybody sees part of this and wants to be a part of the solution. Let's all be a part of progress and make this happen. Good, thank you. Um, well, thank you very much, panel. Very good. Hi, my name is Cynthia Castillo. I'm just wondering, I keep hearing things, we need more development, we need more development, there's not enough development, but everywhere I look, there's development, and so I get very confused as to what is happening with those developments. I literally drive and see tons of huge Crazy. buildings coming up all the time, so when we talk about we need more <laughs> development, what's happening with the development that is happening currently? Well, I think it's a great question, and, and you know, I mentioned supply earlier, I'll say all supplies are not created equal, mm. right, yeah. so, you know, you just, because a building's going up doesn't mean that it has enough units that folks can afford or it's designed in a way that people need. So, uh, you know, I think part of the answer is uh, making sure that we, again, have that range of options built for folks that, uh, yes, we need more housing in the state. We need, there's just not enough. And that's definitely forcing some of the supply issues. But then when we start building, we need to make sure that those, to your point, are, are the units that people need. So I think it's a great, great observation. And I, can I just build on Rodney's comment? I would just say that um, the research shows that the innovation, innovation sector has you know, very high level incomes, but for every innovation job, such as the tech industry, there are five other jobs at much lower wages. Mm -hmm. And so really speaking to that, you think about, in our communities, we don't really think about, it's the people who take care of our children. It's teachers. It is your baristas. It is the people who maybe clean your home, that are not considered. And so we're, we are building, there is market rate, there's a lot of commercial development, but a lot of the development that's been happening is very high, and then the rents are exorbitant because we don't have rent control, we don't have other protections. Mm -hmm. So there is development happening, but not at the rate that we need for the population, and definitely not for people that are lower wage or have lower incomes, who continue to be priced out, pushed out, and getting closer to housing insecurity or housing instability. It, yeah, it's just not enough, and it seems like it's a lot, it's just not enough. I've had a lot of discussions recently with Francisco Rodriguez, who's the Chancellor of the Community College District here in Los Angeles. He has 265,000 students. The vast majority of them are just out of high school, not all, there's a lot of returning students, but a lot of them are just out of high school. In two years, he'll have 265,000 more. All of those people are moving out of their parents' houses. They have to find apartments. They, have to, they, they, they get married. They start families. Like, like the number of people, there are 40 million people in this state. There's just, it just it boggles the mind. There are 47 million people in the country of Spain. 
There are 40 million people in California. <laughs> there are 20 million plus in all of Australia. Right, and they all live on the coast. It's a landmass the size of the United States. Yeah, Australia's continental size of USA. Right, there's yeah. 37 million people in Canada. We're larger than Canada. Like, I mean, yeah. it, it just it boggles the mind how many people are here, which all you have to do is get on the 405. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm Patricia Perez, and I want to build on Rodney's point in terms of what kind of housing is being built, but actually this question is for the senator. Um, the housing that's being built in Boyle Heights right now, we have young people that are fighting gentrification of their neighborhood because uh, renters are being displaced for housing and now the people can't even afford to live in their own neighborhoods and the youth, are they're fighting back, which of course there's a lot of pushback from people because they're saying, you're fighting against developers. Is there some balance there that we can come up with? Some, you know, ground that we can uh, where we can work together. I understand the concerns and the fears of of, of long-term uh, uh, Heights residents who are or, uh, generational residents, and obviously of a sudden they're being priced out. Perhaps they've been long-time renters, and uh, perhaps uh, not. Bo Heights is an amazing community. Uh, we have many communities throughout Los Angeles, throughout the country, that perhaps have never been very attractive for whatever reasons. And now, all of a sudden, because of the lack of supply, the issue of demographics, um, now we have folks who are entering certain neighborhoods, and all of a sudden there's a hot demand. And now if you're a uh, owner of an apartment building of a house, all of a sudden you can command a much higher price, whereas before you couldn't because there was never really any attraction to enter. There's the, the, the market didn't allow for higher prices to be had by an apartment owner or a, a housing owner. This is a really serious issue because a lot of folks are, are, are scared. And then when you see the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the, the heated debates and dialogues, the town halls, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of panic, there's a sense of anxiety, there's a sense of if I'm going to be displaced, where am I going to live? Uh, my cultural identity my linguistic identity, everything is, is, is this neighborhood, is this block. And that's where we, you're, you're getting this conflict that's being manifested between younger folks who have the financial wherewithal or perhaps a little more disposable income in comparison to long-term apartment dwellers. And that's the difference between ownership and, and, and rentalship. This is a major crisis up and down the state of California, um, not just in Boyle Heights, but this is why I'm, I'm hoping that this package that we have moved forward will be the first step of, of, of many other steps and I'm hoping it triggers if you will continued momentum because it can't be we're done we washed our hands and this is going to be the solution to everything it, it's not um, but it's my hope that it, it, it triggers many good things to come and that's why I'm still very very optimistic I think this actually raises a, a really thing, important point that we haven't touched on yet as well and that's the communities matter I mean, you mentioned all of the, the little UN that's uh, in your mm -hmm. district uh, with all the countries that are represented there. You know, people like their communities. They like their networks of friends, uh, their favorite parks, and, and uh, maybe their faith group or cultural group or, or what have you is, is nearby. And so, you know, we've talked about this a lot at the macro level, kind of what's needed across the state or even at, at communities, but really it's important to note that people uh, care about what's going on in their neighborhood, and they want to stay in those communities. And you know, when we talk to people, we're ARPs. We talk to the 50 plus a lot, and we find that we've got you know, over seven out of 10 people want to stay in their homes and communities as they age. They want to be there for all those positives. So, as we're talking about all these strategies, I really want us to also think about this in a community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood way as well. That people should be able to stay in the neighborhood they're choosing if if we, if we do this right. 20 years ago, when I moved to to downtown. I asked friends of mine who were working in various aspects of government if uh, how many square feet there were that was empty along Broadway and Spring, and they said, oh my God, it's seven to 10 million square feet. You should move into there. You'll never have to worry about gentrifying anybody out of anything. It's never gonna fill up. Mm -hmm. And as you know, over these 20 years, maybe 45,000 people moved in, and frankly, Almost all of them were either in my income range, which is comfortably middle class or upper middle class, or more. It all filled up, and we didn't really get a whole lot of permanent social so uh, housing. So if there's going to be more, and I hope there is, maybe twice as much, how do we all collectively do better 
to make sure that those people who needed it most, that they get included? Yeah, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. And I, and I think it, it, that question strikes to the heart of, uh, of this debate. And I think that the law of unintended consequences, um, you, you recall 20 years ago, uh, downtown Los Angeles um, at 5 o'clock, right? There wasn't a soul on the streets. Everyone disappeared. No nightlife, zero zilch. And you remember when they built Staples Arena at LA Live, the promise was is that all of a sudden that you'd have a, an exciting nightlife, you know? And all of a sudden you had folks commuting to watch a Lakers game or a LA Kings game or a concert, but they would eat in that vicinity of LA Live, but then they would leave. And then we built a beautiful Walt Disney concert hall and the idea was now we're gonna have a, a lively downtown, but folks would, you know, the demographic who listens to LA Philharmonic, you know, there was no restaurant, so they go straight to the parking lot, watch the concert, get back in the car, and go back, whether they live in the Palisades in Malibu, Sherman Oaks and Sino, or elsewhere, Hancock Park. So it was until the LA City, which I, I commend them, they did a wonderful job in easing the, the zoning laws here, that they can convert all these empty, beautiful buildings into lofts, then you started getting life. And then when you started getting life, you have demands. Demands are, I want a coffee shop, I want restaurants, I want um, a place that sells organic hemp dog biscuits for my dog, you know? <laughs> uh, I, I want dry cleaners and beauty salons and hair salons. I want everyday things that folks need to survive, you know, and live a good quality life. Now comes the law of unintended consequences, which is now the stock, you know, and the price point and a lot of folks like in the arts district who are artists can't afford to live there. They don't have the disposable income. They're struggling artists. And it's the, it's the law of unintended consequences, the goal, desired goals that we want to accomplish, which I think we've accomplished. But now, all of a sudden, we have folks who can't afford to be part of this urban, you know, dynamic, you know, uh, core, which one night I was walking and I thought, I, I felt like I was in Greenwich Village at 12 midnight. It was stunning. It's a stunning turnaround. So that requires policies at the local level, uh, uh, and I'm more than happy to work with them closely to make sure that those folks who want to live in downtown or already live in downtown felt they're being priced out, that there's options for them too. It's, it cannot be exclusive market rate because if the market just drives it exclusively, you're going to hurt people, and those people will be left to decide and they have nowhere to go. And we also have AB 1505, which is part of the package, which is called Inclusionary Zoning, and it's giving... Who's the, the author of that one? I, I um, that was Bloom. Oh, Richard Bloom, Richard yeah, Bloom. from Santa Monica. Yes, yeah, yes, from Santa Monica. Yeah, and yeah. so it basically it's giving the power back to local governments to require affordable housing as part of any... Uh, market rate development that happens up to a certain percentage. <coughs> so some of the progressive communities continue mm. to do it, but what was called, there was a court case a while ago that took that away. This law gives it back. From We've, a famous developer from Los Angeles. Yes, yeah. yes. And we fought very, very hard <laughs> for Medici this. The Medici and, and all it, those things, yeah. you see those Italian theme. But it know. is part, a critical part of the solution, <laughs> and yeah. we encourage you to work with your local yeah. government to help implement that. Largest contributor, Donald Trump, too. You know, yeah. <laughs> Next question is on your left. Wow. Stating the facts. Yeah. My name is Virginia Wexman. Um, I know that several of you on the panel have mentioned the issue of nimbyism, and I wonder if any of you would like to address the connection of nimbyism with the court system here, and especially... Uh, the, the groups that sue uh, developers about developments and particularly in terms of the CEQA mm -hmm. law, uh, regulations. Um, it seems that in many of these cases, the lawyers are the ones who are the big winners in, the, in these situations. And uh, is there any solution to that? We didn't get into CEQA. It mm -hmm. comes up a lot, though. Uh, it's time for it? me to go. I'll talk about it because yeah. I don't, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I don't, I don't know a lot about CEQA. I'll say two things. One is that we do know that there's lawsuit shopping that takes place with CEQA. Yeah. I think there's some effort to, and I know there's discussions in Sacramento to figure out whether or not there could be uh, reasonable limits placed on how it's used. I also know that there are only, that, that less, less than 5% of all development proposals have a CEQA challenge registered against that. Like, that's not the only thing going on. Um, 
So it, it's blown up to be a much bigger problem than it is, but it, it is a problem. And, and um, the folks in Sacramento are going to be very uh, unhappy to talk about it because it, it can get you caught, in a sense, between two different progressive forces, one wanting uh, environmental protection and wanting uh, to hold developers accountable, and the other wanting dramatic increases in the housing stock so that we can, we can give people places to live. And so um, I think it's a very dicey political matter, but I don't think that's the main problem. It's certainly a problem, but I don't think it's the main problem. I don't know if you know, I, I, the last thing I'd say is, is, is CEQA is obviously, uh, um, there, there are folks who do abuse the CEQA system. There's no question about it and have profited uh, royally from the abuse of, of CEQA and, and therefore also stifling. Um, the abilities to, to, to build housing, whether for the homeless, uh, whether for folks who just need access to quality housing, even walk paths that have been stifled uh, using CEQA as a weapon. It's been weaponized, if you will. Um, the characterization that has been uh, overly abused, and you, Gary, you make a very, very good point. It's a very salient point. Um, but I, I want to just sort of kind of dispel a myth because I, I believe that you can, you know, um, protect our environment, and also have economic growth. I don't think they're in, uh, exclusive of each other. They're not incompatible. I think they are compatible with each other. You know, protect our environment, the air that we breathe, open space, as well as economic growth. We just have to be more creative about how we do this and not just take a meat cleaver, you know, legislatively and sort of just start going at it and out comes this monstrosity that simply doesn't make sense, but because we try to deal with all the various political interests across the spectrum to find consensus and common ground. We came up with a Frankenstein version that works for nobody at all. Yeah. Uh, my name is Mark Indrada. I uh, previously lived in Koreatown as a renter mm. in your district. And as of uh, earlier this year, I became a homeowner in Pico Union. Oh, um, as you know, all the development, the commercial development in that region is just insane. Yes. Osmond Staples Center, all those buildings, hotels, et cetera. Um, my question is this, this, this could be for anybody in the panel, is um, I work for a developer. Mind you, it's a nonprofit permanent supportive housing in downtown for the homeless. So my question is this, in light of the passing of Triple H and also with H for services and Triple H for um, supportive housing, why is it so difficult to build, especially, uh, specifically Los Angeles, how is it so difficult to build here in LA? It's spite of the fact that the community has supported HHH and mm. H in large numbers. I was going to ask that question myself. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, because l l let me say, l let me put this into histor historical perspective. Never in the history of both the city and the county has there been so much money on the table to deal seriously with the issue of the homeless population. Never. Never during Tom Bradley, Antonio Villaraigosa, um, I don't re remember who went before Tom Bradley, or, or Jim Hahn, never. With No Place Like Home, which is $2 billion for the state of California, with HHH, as well as H, which is the mental health wraparound services that we need for our mentally ill who are homeless. You know, never has there been, there been so much money. So the execution has been done and by the voters of the city and county who I admire and respect greatly, you have really stepped up. Now the question becomes, is this all for naught and it gets bottlenecked because now we can't get the permitting, we can't get the, 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 uh, the, the zoning, we can't, you know, is there some nimbyism? All of the confluence, right, of all of these forces coming together and stopping progress because it's not gonna get better it'll only get worse, but we have money that's on the table and it will go to waste because we're trying to take that capital and attract more capital from the private sector and multiply it, if you will, so we can deal with the societal impacts of homelessness. So it's not healthy to have someone who sleeps in front of your business doorstep. It's not healthy for the individual, it's not healthy for the business owner who's invested their life savings to open up a restaurant or a coffee shop. It makes no sense when the LAPD picks you up, books you, fingerprints you, takes your picture, uh, and then you go to court, and you went to court because it was a failure to appear, because you're schizophrenic, you're bipolar, you're depressed, 
and you don't know the difference between night and day. So how are you going to be cognizantly aware that you got a ticket? And we go through this revolving door constantly. And that's why I was just stunned and like I, I couldn't figure out the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And that's when my predecessor and I, Daryl Steinberg, just said, you know what, we're going to move $2 billion because the issue is housing, housing, housing with the wraparound services. You cannot give mental psychotherapeutic services to someone who is mentally ill and then they go back into the alley in Santee Alley and live in a cardboard box. You're burning money with no visible outcomes from the taxpayer. That makes no sense at all whatsoever. And again, it's, it's almost a schizophrenic policy or lack thereof, if you will, that happens in many local governments up and down the state of California. Anyway, that's my soapbox on that issue because I am serious about the issue because I don't like what's happening. You know? And, and, and it, that's why you've got to streamline the process so we can start building what's needed for the communities. And I went to one housing development, uh, a, 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 a homeless, uh, not shelter. Permanent supportive housing. Permanent supportive housing. When I became convinced, because I physically saw it, I was stunned. I thought it was loft. I thought they were lofts at market rate. And then they said, no, this is uh, permanent supportive housing for homeless folks. And I, are you sure? And I went around and around, and I was stunned that you can make something that is aesthetically pleasing and accessible and provides the necessary services on the lifelong journey that they will go through to figure out how they became homeless in the first place. It is possible. So the question is, how do you take what you works and scale it up? And that's, that I think it, it is possible. But I would also suggest, though, that we need to pause and think about this is the long game. Right? It, it, there's a variety of steps that take to do production. We now have the investment. These happen very quickly. We have to scale up. So there are projects in the pipeline, but it is going to take time. It's mm -hmm. going to take everyone working together, and this is for the long game. So I think right now, and I really appreciate, I don't know who your developer is, but really, really appreciate that work. And I think I just met with a variety of homeless service providers, because Housing California works across the spectrum and across the state, and really talked about all the strengths and all the assets, and we all need to work together, but it takes time. And so we need to protect people where they are and know that this is something that's going to take time. We're building infrastructure for sustainable solutions over time. So I think it's important. It's very hard to be patient when so many people are experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity, and yet it took us a long time to get here, and it's going to take us a while to build out of it. So we've got the resources, we've got the laws, the, the permitting, and the other. We've got housing element, a variety of things, but it's going to take time to move the solution. And so we all need to be part of that process and work with our systems, work with our governments, work with the private sector to make this happen yeah, together. I yeah. And I think part of that is, frankly, you know, if we set a goal of ending homelessness, if we set a goal of providing the types of homes that people need, and that becomes a community-wide goal, yeah. then you get the support that you need for your work, for the work that everyone's doing to try to meet those goals. But I really do think that we need to all take part in, you know, accepting this as a goal uh, for the community so that we can get to those solutions to play that long game that you're talking about. Well, it's a great forward-looking point to end this conversation tonight. But before we do, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I want to thank That's our co-presenter tonight, AARP California. Without whom tonight would not have been possible. So a big round of applause for them, please. And also to our friends at the Japanese American National Museum for bringing us into their beautiful space. We also... Thank you. We also want to thank all of you for joining us, and we really hope that you'll stick around. We invite you to a reception outside. Join us for a drink in the lobby. And finally, I want to thank our wonderful panelists for giving us their time, their insight, their expertise with, with us tonight. So please give them one really big final round of applause. Yeah.